Let's get uh, started in our discussion this morning. So we started our Advent series last week. Uh, we had a conversation with Paul uh, about peace on earth offered through the coming of Jesus. And holiday season is one of my favorite times of the year. This year I discovered something that I enjoy that I didn't know that I enjoyed. Most years, and by most years, I mean every year except for this year, uh, my wife Rachel does the grocery shopping for Thanksgiving. And this year, for whatever reason, I happened to be driving near the grocery store where she was shopping, getting, arriving to shop, and I said, hey, why don't I stop by and help you? Which I knew was going to be a huge blessing to my wife. Uh, and I discovered I really like grocery shopping for Thanksgiving. You get to buy all this special food and you buy an, a kind of an absurd amount of food. It was really fun. I probably enjoyed it more than her. But I also discovered something I don't like about grocery shopping. It's the moment when you arrive at home. The joy of picking out all the food and purchasing all the food has passed. And now I've got an entire back of my van filled with plastic bags that I have to get into the house. And I don't like that part. But it turns out I'm really good at it because I like load bags all the way up each one of my arms and then every finger gets two bags because I'm going to do this in one trip. And then I grab that pallet of water between the arms and I'm like, I got this. And then I say, hey, Rachel, throw that frozen turkey up on here. She's like, it's 25 pounds and it's frozen like a ball. I said, put it on there. <laughs> Throws that on top. Give me that bag of Hawaiian rolls. Put them in my teeth. That'll be great. And then here I come into the house. I got, you know, 20 yards to make it, and I'm going to strain everything I've got to get it into the house. Because I got this. No problem. Now, here's the thing. It's probably, I probably don't look very cool doing it. But in my mind, I look something like this. I don't know if you remember when Captain America was stopping that helicopter from taking off. That's what I feel like inside. I thought about Photoshopping my face on this picture, but... It's close enough. <laughs> and here's, the, here's the reality. That's oftentimes uh, what I kind of feel like is going on in my life. Like there's a million things that I've got to hold on to and carry all at the same time. I've got to manage my family and being a good father and being a good husband and my professional life and my work and the expectations on me. And I have a bunch of things in the world that I need to care about. And I have my extended family that I need to care about. And I feel sometimes like internally I'm trying to Captain America my way through life. Holding on to everything as hard as I can. And if I strain hard enough, it's not going to actually rip my arms completely out of the socket. Which is what would happen if this was me. And it really, you know, maybe you hear that and go, you know what, I kind of feel that way sometimes about my life too. There's a lot going on and it's hard to hold it all together. And it really begs the question, especially in a moment like this where we're in a series on Advent that, that's about peace on earth. And the question really is this, does peace on earth include peace within me? Because I think sometimes we can talk about this grand moment where God becomes a child that happened 2,000 years ago, and we can talk about the miraculous joy of that moment, and then we can look internally in the quiet moments of our own heart and go, if he brought peace, why am I not experiencing more of it in here? I want to I spend some time this morning talking about that, and before we do, if you would join me in prayer, I really want this to be helpful. I want it to be helpful for you. Um, and particularly, if this, I know for some of you in the room today, this is really going to touch a nerve with you. This will be something that you're really struggling with, and, I, and I, want the, I want the Holy Spirit to meet you this morning. 
And so I want, I want us together to invite him to be here with us, to apply these words to your heart, to make the preparation that I did effective. So if you'd join me in prayer, that'd be great. God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the season. We thank you for the joy that it brings. God, we also confess that many times uh, we're overcome with anxiety and worry and stress, and we don't want it. God, we feel like we have to hold it all together, and yet we know deep down we can't. God, I pray that this morning, if that describes someone sitting in the room, that they would feel your presence here, that your Holy Spirit would meet them. God, that you'd empower me. Um, I've done preparation, uh, but my words that I've prepared are powerless without the power of your Spirit. So meet us here in this place. God, we want to be transformed and we want to be free. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to talk this morning about the idea of anxiety, worry, and fear. We talk about peace on earth. One of the things that God promises to bring is peace internally, peace within us. And we have to say, well, is anxiety something that seems like something we should take a whole week of our Advent series to talk about? Well, here's some stats on anxiety, worry, and fear. Uh, Psychologists call anxiety and generalized anxiety disorder, and we're going to talk about that here in a second, but 2.7% of people worldwide experience what they would classify as a generalized anxiety disorder. I'll give you a definition for that here in just a minute, but just just so you know, worldwide, 2.7% of people experience this. The, The thing that's interesting to me about this is that when you poll Americans, Americans last year, 19.1% of them would have qualified for having generalized anxiety disorder. And in a lifetime, Americans at almost one-third will go through something that would be classified as a generalized anxiety disorder. What that tells me is that the American way of life offers us many things, and one of the things it offers us is anxiety and stress. I'm not going to have a whole bunch of time to dive into why I think our way of life in particular offers us anxiety and stress, because unless you're going somewhere tomorrow, you probably aren't going to opt out of it anyway, so let's talk about how we deal with it instead. Here's what the definition of generalized anxiety disorder is. People with general anxiety disorder don't know how to stop the worry cycle. They feel like it's beyond their control, even though they usually realize that their anxiety is more intense than the situation warrants. All anxiety disorders may relate to a difficulty tolerating uncertainty, and therefore people with GAD try to plan or control situations. Many people believe that worry prevents bad things from happening, so they view it as risky to give up worry. You probably don't need my help to understand how intensely broken that cycle is. I'm worried and anxious, so the solution is more worry and anxiety, and I'm worried that if I give up the worry, I'll have more worry. It's a cycle that goes on and on. And I thought one of the things that was the most insightful in this, this is not a Christian source, this is a general psychology source that defines this. The thing that I thought was most insightful out of this is that they said that people are trying to plan and control situations. If you want something that will give you anxiety, try hanging on to the illusion that you can control and plan your life. 
And then you say, well, maybe this is just a modern American issue. Maybe this is just something we deal with in the West. I don't know. I would say that's probably not true. And here's the reason why. The Bible is chock full of instructions about not being afraid. In fact, depending on how you classify the text, 365 unique texts in the Bible deal with the idea of anxiety and fear. Here's just a small smattering of them that I put together for you. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. First Peter, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from my fears. So you have Joshua and David in the Old Testament. You've got Peter and Paul in the New Testament. And then we cap it off with two quotes from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled in John 14. And in Luke 12, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. The reality is that the Bible acknowledges that fear, anxiety, and stress is something that we as humans, even those of us that are closest to Jesus, experience. After all, that last quote from Luke 12, Jesus calls them his little flock. Think about how close you have to be to Jesus for him to verbally call you his little sheep. That's a term of endearment and of closeness, and yet he's encouraging even those who are that close to him, don't be afraid. Fear is something that we experience. And I think, I want to give one caveat before we keep going. This morning, if you're here with us this morning and you say, I'm not a Christian, I'm kind of checking this whole church thing out, I'm kind of interested, but I wouldn't say I'm a Jesus follower yet. I want to say, we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, But my approach this morning is going to be coming at this from a Christian point of view. So you get the opportunity, if if I just described you, you get to sit in and see what this group of weirdos thinks. Because we take the Bible very seriously, and we want to follow Jesus with our whole life. And so I'm going to be confronting us and myself about the way we deal with these things. And we invite you to look in and see what we're talking about. Here's the reality about Christian anxiety. It really comes at the duality of belief that we have as people. And the the duality of belief looks like this. There's conceptual belief and functional belief. Conceptual belief, you say, I rationally believe this is true. Functional belief says, I I behave as if I believe that it is true. And I think these two pictures kind of illustrate the difference, right? On the left-hand side, I can look up from the ground at those anchors in that rock wall and say, I believe conceptually that those would hold my weight, The guy on the right-hand side who's actually hanging from them is demonstrating his functional belief in that truth. I am hanging from them and demonstrating that I believe that it is true by the way that I behave. This is not a uniquely modern problem. After all, James, the brother of Jesus, addresses in his letter, in the letter of James, which is at the end of your Bible, if you want something to read during this holiday season, I'd encourage you to look it up. James is obsessed with this idea. In fact, if I could give you the short modern thesis of James's letter, it would be this, stop being a phony. In fact, here's here's two selections from James's letter in the first two chapters. In the first chapter, in James chapter one, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror And after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
In the second chapter, just a short stone's throw away from that, he says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but he has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What good is it to have conceptual belief if it's not functional? What good is it to assent to ideas that don't impact the way you live? What good is it to acknowledge something is true, but behave as if it is not? You're like somebody who looked in the mirror, saw what was true about your face, and then walked away and said, I'm pretty. That's what I say to myself. (laughs) Here's the reality. For Christians, anxiety lives in the gap between our conceptual and our functional beliefs. Because when I say God cares for me and yet I behave as if he does not, I will be an anxious person. When I say God is control, in control of my life and sovereign over all things, but I behave as he, if he is not, I will be an anxious person. Because one person is responsible for filling the gap there. It really presents this idea of conceptual, conceptual versus functional belief really presents to us one option. And here's what the option is. This is the choice that you get to make day, to, day in and day in and out in your life. It's this. Which king do I choose? The good and capable king, that's Jesus, spoiler alert, or the confused, incapable king, that's you, also spoiler alert. Because this is the reality. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the king over all creation and he is good and he cares about you and he cares about you in an intimate, known kind of way. He's good and he has power to do good things in your life. And instead, we opt for the other option. We opt to be the one in charge, the person who doesn't even know what I want or what I need, and I'm absolutely ineffective at achieving the goals even if I had the clarity that I needed. And yet, when given that choice, which seems laughably obvious when it's on a screen on Sunday morning, in my everyday, workaday life, I go to this side all the time. Why should we be surprised that we're anxious? If we believe what Jesus says, here is what Jesus says as he's leaving his disciples and he's leaving them with the mission in which he will be gone. He opens his statement by saying this, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. If we believe that is true, Matthew 28 is where it's recorded, then that has to impact the way we live. It has to impact our posture in our lives. If all authority has been given to him, What authority are you clamoring for? We're going to talk through what I think are three major sources of anxiety in our lives. I think it's important to delineate these three things. Uh, The first one is anxiety brought on by trauma and health. We're going to talk about that first because I think it's a really important disclaimer for the church to acknowledge this role that it has in people's lives. The second one is we're going to talk about external inputs that bring anxiety into us. And then the third one we're going to talk about is life circumstances. Number one, trauma and health, misfiring defense mechanisms. One of the dangers that I think the church can have when we talk about things like anxiety, like stress, like trauma, is we can act as if they're not real and that the only things you experience in life are somehow only spiritual. We, we have to push against that, and I'm going to help us do that for a second. And I want to start by talking about nostalgia triggers. I read an article about, a, let's see, last month probably. And one of the things that they said was, if you're ever going on a, a vacation, 
you're taking your spouse on a 20th anniversary trip, for instance, which my wife and I did last year, uh, one of the things that they suggested to make it memorable was to choose an, an album that you had never listened before to bring on the trip. Now, if you're young in the room and you don't know what an album is, that's like a playlist, but only one artist, okay? Uh, so you choose an album you haven't listened to, and then on the trip, you listen to that album on repeat, now, if you've ever had an experience like this, you already know where I'm going with it. The reason for that is because years and years and years later, when that music plays, you're instantly back on a road in Napa Valley, cruising in the dappled sunlight, because that song has etched a trail from your ears to your head to your heart, and it's all tied together in goodness because you wed those things together. I can think about it right now. There's a song that just came on the other day and I immediately in that moment was driving down a hill in California towards the beach because we listened to that song one time in that spot and I remembered it. The other day a song came on and I said to my son, Asher, Asher, do you know what this song reminds me of? And he said, what? And I said, driving through the north woods of Minnesota and he said, oh yeah, because he remembered it too. This is the reality and the gift of nostalgia. It can, it can wire things in your body that you can recall without intention decades later. And there's a dark side to this practice. And the dark side to this practice is that when bad things happen, when difficult things happen, when traumatic things happen in the life of people, we can tie that experience in the exact same process together in ways that we can't really control when that song comes into my ear, I don't willfully bring about this idea. It happens whether I want to or not. And for people who have experienced trauma, there are triggering things in your life that you will hear, experience, smell that will bring you to that place immediately and trigger along with it, much like nostalgia brought me kindness and warmth and goodness, it can bring fear and anxiety and dread and stress. That is a real thing. 11 years ago, my wife and I lost uh, our infant boy, Paxson. He survived for 11 days before he died, and he spent all 11 days in the NICU. To this day, when we go to the hospital, and maybe even more simple than that, when I hear a specific tone of beep that recalls to me the sound of the machines that were in the NICU during that time, I'm immediately back in that place. Not because I tried to, but because my body has wired that response in me. And I just want to say to you, if, if you have that experience, if that's something you're experiencing, you, we need to acknowledge that's real because your emotional and your physical self are as much you as your spiritual self. We are holistic people. We are made up of our body, our soul, and our mind. And those things are intertwined in a way that cannot be easily separated. And so if we make this conversation about anxiety and stress only a spiritual one, we're going to miss two-thirds of your body, which God acknowledges as being good and made in his design. And so I'd encourage you, if you fit in that category, find a counselor who can help you, help you start to unpack that and to understand how those things happen and why you go to those places and how to deal with them if they come up. I think it's, it's only responsible if we acknowledge that this is a real thing for a lot of people. Before we move on to category two, external inputs. The voices are many and they are loud. Here's a stat for you, 74 gigabytes of information. 
I don't know what your impression is when you hear that number. I know most people go, that seems big, but I really don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of context for it, okay? 500 years ago, a well-educated, well-read, well-traveled person would take in 74 gigabytes of information in the course of their life from books that they read, songs that they heard, stories they shared, experiences in travel. All of the things that happened in their entire life would fill up about 74 gigabytes of information if you were to put it on a computer, okay? Today, you take in 74 gigabytes of information every day. Now, the last service, when I felt a little bit of it just now, but the last service, when I said it, there was audible gasps. This is the part that's so... <laughs> you're with me, Karen? Yeah. Uh, the part that's funny about that is I feel like... I'll just... I'll tell you my feeling on it. I don't really know what that means, but it feels bad. <laughs> I'm like, boy, that seems like a lot. I don't, I don't know. But here's what I do know. We are being jammed with external information in the form of internet, podcasts, social media, music, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. Everything is coming at you at a level that has never been experienced in human history. And I'm going to posit to you that I think one of the reasons that we experience stress and anxiety at the levels that we do in the Western modern world is because we have access to everything all the time. I looked up a study that said 12 years ago, this number was half as large as it is right now. And I'll tell you what changed. This. In the last 10 years, we went from a computer being something that was in your office, or if you were really important, maybe you had a laptop, to you having a computer in your pocket at every moment. It probably wakes you up first thing in the morning, and it probably puts you to bed last thing at night. You are constantly being bombarded with ideas and thoughts, things to care about, things to be outraged about. There's a requirement to participate in our society that you know what's happening. 15, 20 years ago, if you said to someone, what do you think about politics? The most common answer would have been, I'm not really interested in politics. No one says that anymore. They might be disgusted by politics, but they know what's going on. I think one of the problems and one of the reasons that we've become a hyper-tribalized society is because we are incapable of dealing with the nuance of this much information and sorting through it all. So what the world has done and we've participated in is we've divided it up into simple-to-understand categories. Tell me who to be angry at. Tell me who to hate. Tell me who's on my team so I can make sense of all this. And I'm just telling you, and I want to encourage you as a Christian, you're called to be someone different in the world. And one of the ways that I think that you can be different is by willingly unplugging some of the inputs. You don't have to care about everything. You don't. There are some things that you cannot opt out of. TikTok is not one of them. No judgments. I'm not on TikTok. Don't take my Twitter away, though. I came across a quote because I think it's more complex than even just those voices that are coming at us. I came across a quote from a Dutch theologian that I thought was helpful. I know that's a lot of words. Don't worry, you don't have to read it. I'll read it to you. Okay, here we go. When we start being too impressed by the results of our work, we slowly come to the erroneous conviction that life is one large scoreboard where someone is listing the points to measure our worth. And before we're fully aware of it, we've sold our soul to the many great givers. That means that we're not only in the world, but of the world. Then, what then we become what the world makes us. We're intelligent because someone gives us a high grade. We're helpful because someone says thanks. We're likable because someone likes us. 
And we're important because someone considers us indispensable. In short, we are worthwhile because we have successes. And the more we allow our accomplishments, the results of our actions to become the criteria of our self-esteem, the more we're going to walk on our mental and spiritual toes, never sure if we'll be able to live up to the expectations which were created by our last successes. In many people's lives, there is a nearly diabolical chain in which their anxieties grow according to their success. Now, maybe you say, yeah, I've, I've experienced that. And, and it's even more psychotic than that because anxiety hides behind both the fear that you'll never live up and the fear that you can't possibly keep it up. Whether you haven't achieved what you've set for yourself or the expectations of the world around you, you live in anxiety that maybe you'll never live up to what they've set for you. And the minute you achieve the thing that you feel like has been set beside you, you begin another cycle of anxiety that says, I'm never going to be able to keep this up. I'm never going to be able to sell more than last quarter. I'm never going to do better this time. I can't keep it up. And it's because we've bought into a lie that our value and our definition of people comes from external sources. That is not what the scriptures say about you. And I'm here to remind you what it says. Romans chapter eight, here's what Paul says. For those of you that are led by the spirit of God, just pause for a second. If you're a Christian, that's you. You are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The spirit testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. And if we are God's children, we are heirs. The lie that the world has been putting upon your shoulders is that you will be defined in your value by how you perform. The problem is that the ladder of success is always moving. It's never achievable. And it's always easy to fall short. He uses the idea of slavery here. This is something that Paul talks about all the time. And what is described in that quote is slavery. I am now a slave to the opinions of people who grade me. If I do well, I'm a slave to their approval. And if I do poorly, I am a slave to their disapproval. You have been given a spirit of freedom. Because the creator God of the universe calls you his child. And he has said that the kingdom of which he is ruler has been entrusted to you as his rightful heir. If that doesn't give you freedom to operate within the freedom that he has given you in the gospel, then you need to re-examine what you believe about the gospel. He gave everything to bring you into his family, to call you his child, to give you his spirit, and to give you a mission that you've been called to live within. That's what he's given to us. Why do we act as if that's not true? I want to talk about the third category, life circumstances, which I've summarized with life is hard. Life is hard. I came across a study that uh, talked about stress in life. They, they ranked uh, stressful events that happened in the life of a person, and they, they gave them a rank based on a scoring categories. And this was the top 10 most stressful things that a person can experience. The first one being the spouse, the death of a spouse or a child, things like divorce and separation, imprisonment, death of a close family member. 
I think what's really important is that while we acknowledge that life is hard, there's something that we need to be careful about not doing. This list of stresses are real things that cause sadness, lament, brokenheartedness, and that is not the same thing as stress and anxiety, okay? Because one of the things that can happen is we can get really mixed up when you experience cancer in your life, right? You get a cancer diagnosis. The fact that you lament the fact that you have cancer is not evidence that you don't trust God, but it is temptation to invite anxiety into your life as you start asking all the questions that surround the thing that brings legitimate stress. The questions like, what if this is really hard? What if I die? What will happen to my family? Anxiety creeps in around the edges of legitimately stressful situations because anxiety says this big scary thing is happening in your life, this big difficult thing is happening in your life, what are you gonna do to make it okay? That is anxiety inducing because what you are gonna do is hold on for dear life and pray that God is kind to you. That's what you're gonna do if you do it right. The problem is we try to muster all of our forces to grab onto that helicopter and I'm gonna hold that thing as tight as I can to try to get through what is a legitimately stressful situation. When we lost our son, we would have people say to us out of the goodness of their hearts trying to be kind, you're so brave. That's what people said that to me. And my response back to them is, what other choice did I have? Because I I understood that I had no power in the situation to solve it, to fix it, to make it better. All I had was a God who is committed to loving me and I'm holding on to him for dear life. And he got me through. If that's bravery, I'll take it, I'm brave. But my bravery looks a lot different than the world's bravery. And I would tell you as a Christian, your bravery needs to look different too. And the good thing is we have a great example in the life of Jesus. And you say, well, what do you mean, Jesus? He wasn't stressed. He wasn't anxious. Well, let me tell you, if you think somebody had the reason to be anxious, Jesus is your guy. After all, here's the stresses of Jesus. I just gave us four big categories to look at. Number one, he was poor and homeless. He relied exclusively, he, he said he didn't have a pillow. He had a rock to lay his head on. And he relied on the kindness of his friends to give him a place to sleep and a place to eat. He had poverty in his life. Number two, his life was filled with demands from other people. Starting with his own mom who said, hey, could you do something about this wine situation? It ain't my problem, woman. I'm not being disrespectful. That's what Jesus actually says to her. But uh, all the way up to my, my child has died. Can you raise them from the dead? Jesus's life was filled with demands from people who wanted from him. And they wanted difficult, emotionally costly things from Jesus. Thirdly, he was constantly being hounded by hostility. The religious leaders, those with power and those with a voice all disliked what he was doing and were constantly speaking out against him. They were rooting for his demise. They were hoping that he would fail. That brings stress into your life. And lastly, he knew he was heading towards a violent, unjust death. He knew it was gonna be long, drawn out, and painful. If you don't think that life can bring to you the kind of stress that we're talking about, then you haven't lived this kind of life. Jesus had more opportunity than anyone to say, man, I'm stressed out. And yet, in John 14, Jesus is with his disciples heading into the last week of his life. We just talked about it a couple months ago. And this is what he says to them. 
Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Jesus says, I'm heading into the most difficult time of my entire life, the thing that hangs over me, and I'm giving my peace to you, my friends. Those words hold no weight unless they come from an unanxious person. The last person who you're going to credibly give credit to who says, let me give you my peace, is the person who's constantly stressed out. It's like me giving you diet advice. You know what? I'm good. Jesus says, I'm giving you my peace, and he says it with credibility because he is filled with peace when he has every excuse not to be. So maybe it would behoove us to take a look at the life and practices of Jesus to figure out how did he avoid being overcome with stress. And I'm going to give you four things as we're heading towards a close here that I think that we can inhabit in our lives that will help us to live unanxious lives. The first one is Jesus understood the importance of community. He was surrounded by his three closest friends, his 12 disciples, his 72 followers, and nearby he had people like Lazarus and Martha and Mary who may or may not have been included in that number but offered him comfort and friendship and laughter and kindness. Jesus was not a loner. Jesus was with people constantly. The irony of American society is that you can have more voices in your life and less people than ever before. It's easier than ever to be disconnected from people and yet feel like you're hearing from people all the time. And the church is one place where you can actually actively disrupt that cycle in modern society because that's what we exist for is to help you have community with other people who love Jesus and want to pursue him. I'm going to give you two practical ways you can engage. Number one, if you've been around this church for a long time, if you say this is my home, if you say I want to be on mission in this place, next Sunday I'm hosting a membership class where I'm going to talk through the membership materials here at the church and you can look at what it looks like to make a commitment to be on mission with us as a church as part of the, being part of our membership. I'd encourage you to sign up. You can do it on the app, online. Be with us next week. If you've never taken steps that get you close to that, you say, you know what, we're kind of new here or we've been on the kind of periphery of the church for a while, I want to encourage you to come be with me in another class I teach. This is really an advertisement for all the classes I teach. Uh, there's one called Launch Point that we're starting right after the first of the year, which is a way for you to meet other people trying to connect to the church, hear how we see people becoming disciples of Jesus here in this environment, and connecting you to community and service, which is what you need to follow these footsteps of Jesus. If you don't have that in your life, you need it. Don't keep putting it off. Secondly, Jesus viewed worship as indispensable. He was in the synagogue every single week, and he made uh, temple pilgrimages for all the major celebrations in Jewish life of his day. He prioritized worship. And I'm going to tell you that one of the ways that you can push back on the anxiety in your life and close the gap between your conceptual belief and your functional belief is to commit to being in church as much as you can. Because here's what we believe is true. When you sit under the preach word of God with God's people, the Holy Spirit meets us and transforms us and changes us day by day. And you have the opportunity to be here. I don't want to say you'd be a fool to miss it, but you can. Okay, uh, the third one, I want to talk about prayer. One of the things that we see in Jesus' life all the time is that he is constantly withdrawing from the crowds and from his disciples for prayer to be alone with God. 
And I'm going to dovetail this with the fourth one because I read something, and this is something I've personally discovered in the last couple of years, and I want to share it with you. Jesus, during his ministry, someone nerdier than me, those people exist, uh, went through the New Testament and added up the miles of all the places that it says that Jesus walked. And in the three years of his ministry, Jesus walked an estimated 3,125 miles around the Judean countryside. Uh, and, I, and here's what I know about that experience, because I'm a backpacker. I like to go camping and backpacking. And here's what happens when you go on a backpacking trip with a bunch of your friends. In the first mile, everybody is so geeked to be out there. They put on their backpack, and they're excited, and they're telling jokes, and they're punching each other in the kidneys because they're so amped up. And they're like, this is great. Let's take pictures. Let's take videos. And then you hit mile three, and everybody shuts up. And their head goes down. And it's one step in front of the other and all the laughs and the jokes have stopped because it becomes a very meditative, difficult process, one step in front of the other. And I'm just telling you in that moment, if you combine that with prayer and God's presence, there is a powerful recipe for wholeness in that. During COVID, I, I went on uh, almost a three month straight every single day walking three and a half miles in the morning mainly because we can go anywhere else. And I've tried to keep it up on a less regular basis. In, in fact, in the, on the last three sermons that I've prepared here for Sunday, my habit has been on Thursday morning, I go for a four-mile, little over an hour-long walk, and on Friday morning, I do the same thing. And both of those are intended for, for one thing, clarity, prayer, and meeting with God. And I'm just gonna tell you, he's been faithful to me in those moments. He helps me to see what I'm trying to communicate. And I think what he has for me to teach me, he meets me in those places. He's, he's kind to me. The anxiety that I feel naturally from public speaking and preparing something for you melts away. And he's inviting you into the same process. If you said, what's one thing that I could do to help me with my anxiety and my stress? I would say once a week, walk for one hour. Don't bring your headphones. Meet God. God, I'm, I'm here because I want to hear from you. I'm here because I have things I need to wrestle with and I want you to help me wrestle with them. And he's going to be overjoyed. I wanna, I'm going to leave you with one last story. This is my son, Beck. He's real cute. Uh, Beck's nine years old. He's in fourth grade. This picture was taken last fall, fall of 2020. Uh, he would have been eight years old at the time. And he and I went on our very first um, solo backpacking trip, just me and him. And we drove up to the Mogollon Rim, and we hiked into Bear Canyon, uh, which is absolutely beautiful. You can see the leaves were changing colors. It was absolutely spectacular. And one of the joys that I had as his dad is I knew where I wanted to take him. I'd been here before, but I included him in the process. I knew where we were going, and I knew how we were going to get there. But I brought out the map, and I sat him down, and I said, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And he participated in that process. And then we packed up all of our stuff uh, it's fall on the rim. It was cold. My backpack was overflowing and must have weighed 50 pounds because I tried to stuff it with as much stuff as I could so I could take the weight off of his shoulders. You can see him wearing his backpack and how happy he looks. It's because it's real light. <laughs> He's got a down sleeping bag and his, I think his water bottle maybe. But the joy that it gave me as his dad to carry the load for him because I knew where we were going. I knew the joys he was going to experience. I knew the plan that I had for him and where we were going to end up. And I just kept saying to him with joy in my voice, walk with me, buddy, walk with me. I'm just, I'm just telling you, Jesus is saying that to you. 
When, when you're running around stressed and you're carrying the weight of life and you're trying to hold it all together, he's saying to you, when will you let me show you what I've planned for you? When will you let me carry the weight? I mean, he, he says to the people who are listening to him during his ministry, come to, you, come to me, you who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke, take my backpack upon you and learn from me. Walk with me. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anxiety and stress tells me that the burden that you're carrying is heavy and it's overwhelming and you understand somewhere at the deepest level that you're incapable of making it all come together. I have good news for you. It's the gospel. God has come to call you his children, to invite you into his kingdom and the work that he was doing in that place. He has a mission for you. He has a plan for your life. It's good. He cares about you and he will carry the weight for you. Why are you resisting? Stop resisting. Walk with him. Invite him to carry the load with you and you'll find freedom in that place. If I'm going to pray here in just a minute and we're going to take communion and then we're going to worship. But I just want to invite you. I know for maybe some of you in the room, you, you thought, man, this is something I really struggle with. And, and I'm really, I need some help in this area. I'm, I'm going to make an invitation to you during the worship um, portion of our service here, the last couple songs. There's going to be people posted up at these tables here in the corner and they'd, we'd love to pray with you about this. Um, to be able to ask God to show you clarity in his kindness towards wanting to help you. And so you can go to those places and find prayer. Why don't you pray with me and then we're gonna take communion together as a church. God, we thank you for your kindness. God, we thank you that you care about us. God, we thank you that you do not desire us to be afraid or filled with anxiety or doubt or fear that you have a plan for our lives, that it is a good one, that includes our participation in the bringing about of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What a joy. God, I just pray that you be kind to us. Remind us that you're not looking at us with shame and disappointment, but with longing and anticipation for when we call you Papa and come close. God, I pray that you'd meet us in that place. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.